thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 141, A Question of Loyalty. Last time, the worst of the Japanese pilot Nishikaichi taking over the island of Nihau with the help of Yoshio Harada was over. The locals, in wanting to put all this behind them, gathered up the belongings of their enemies to present to the authorities later and buried the two bodies away from the village. As for Ishimatsu Shintani, though he had tried to bribe Beni Kanahele into giving him the pilot's papers, this may have been his attempt to defuse the situation before real harm came to anyone. Either way, his part in this fiasco ended there. So when the Kauai Army Expedition arrived on the scene in the early afternoon of Sunday, December 14th, there was little for them to do except apprehend Mrs. Harada, her child, and Shintani to take them back to Kauai. As for Benny, the medical treatment he needed was not available on his island, so he was also taken over on the U.S. Coast Guard lighthouse tender Kukui with his wife, Ella. It must be noted that the six-foot-six Benny insisted upon walking from the Kukui when it made harbor to the waiting ambulance, a man-made of stern stuff. After being treated in the Kauai hospital for 16 days, Benny and Ella returned to Nihau. The military authorities questioned their two prisoners. Though it could not be proved that Irene Harada had helped Nishikaichi in any way, her willingness to answer even the most basic questions, she would not even confirm the pilot's name, made her questioners think that perhaps she was a Japanese spy. As for the papers that Nishikaichi had searched frantically for, they were never seen again. Later, Benny told the authorities that he had removed them from his house to another, but they could not be located. Yet the loss of those papers, and presumably maps, was no great loss to the Americans. As 29 Japanese planes were shot down during the attack on Pearl Harbor, the Americans' military intelligence soon had other pilots' papers to examine. One such captured map had detailed information about Oahu on the day of the attack. Weather conditions, which ships to target and which to avoid, though the latter was mostly ignored, as well as the attacking plane's heading, altitude, time, and its way in and out of Oahu before and after its attack. However, there was one glaring difference. All flight leaders and their second-in-commands were told that if they could not return to their respective carrier, they were to find a worthy target and slam into it. Only the men of lesser rank, who had less information to give up as prisoners, were told of the Nihau option. Many years after the war, an observer-slash-navigator aboard a Nakajima B-5N2 Kate torpedo bomber, who had also participated on the first attack wave, said of Nishikachi, he didn't land his crippled zero on the beach as instructed, but in the middle of the island. The submarine commander must have scanned the shoreline 
and seeing no downed aircraft, departed. Nishikaichi should have killed himself when he realized he missed the rescue window. It was the greatest shame to become a captive. He chose to live and even harmed innocent civilians. His actions brought dishonor on all of us. Which is a very safe statement to make many decades after the war. But considering the rape of Nanking and what befell the 60 to 80,000 American and Filipino prisoners during the Bataan Death March, little weight can be given to such an observation. Shortly after these events, parts of Nishigaichi's plane was taken to Ford Island for technical evaluation, but its inspection told the Americans little that they had already not gleaned from other enemy planes. However, if a connection can be made, like in the previous episodes as touching IBM's involvement in Nazi Germany before the war, Nishigachi's plane held a generator, propeller, brakes, and radio equipment that were licensed-built from American companies. What must not be overlooked was the panic of the United States just after that morning of December 7, 1941. It was assumed by some, and feared by the rest, that Japanese forces would return to finish off the U.S. fleet at Pearl. Moreover, was the air attack a prelude to an all-out invasion? And as the military intelligence was not yet done with Nishigachi's plane, the rest of it was dragged under some nearby trees. The thinking was that, at the very least, if the Japanese sent over another air wave, surely they would see the wrecked plane and bomb it into oblivion. For the time being, a small detachment was stationed on Nihau, but the troops were told to stay away from the locals. As for the islanders, they were ordered not to speak of the entire event. Both sides followed the orders given to them. However, both groups, in turn, removed pieces of Nishigachi's plane, some for souvenirs, the locals to help with their fishing nets. By January of 1942, with the United States well on the path to war with Japan, one final investigation was completed. Really, it was an analysis of the event that sought to answer one very important question, and this report would play its part in having a profound effect on tens of thousands of lives on the continental U.S. A Captain Mayfield wrote the following, Niihau's population consists of mostly Hawaiians and a few Japanese engaged in cattle raising. Thus, the residents had no idea of the coming attack on Pearl Harbor. The pilot crash-landed and was taken prisoner. Among the guards of the aviator were an American-born Japanese named Harada and an alien Japanese named Shintani, neither of whom had ever been considered disloyal to the United States. Shintani attempted to secure the pilot's papers by bribery, and that Japan in the person of Nishigaichi, had forced him to take this action. With the aid of Harada, the pilot recovered his pistol and a shotgun. Deductions. 
The fact that two Ni'ihau Japanese, who had previously shown no anti-American tendencies, went to the aid of a pilot when Japanese domination of the island seemed possible, indicates likelihood that Japanese residents previously believed loyal to the United States may aid Japan if further Japanese attacks appear successful. Soon after, some 110,000 Japanese Americans would be forced into internment camps. The United States Army paid for the house that Benny lost, and together he and Ella went back to their lives, as soon as his passing celebrity allowed. Shintani was taken to the U.S. mainland for internment. During his stay, he wrote many pleading letters to Aylmer to be permitted to return to Ni'ihau. As for Irene Harada, she was eventually placed in an internment camp, but on Oahu. In that same camp was a Japanese commander of a mini-sub that had run aground near Bellows Field during the attack on Pearl Harbor. Getting back to Irene, it was a tricky case for the United States officials. She was a U.S. citizen, so the authorities kept her on Oahu instead of the U.S. mainland, where she could have used due process to her advantage. But in mid-1944, she was released, after signing an agreement not to hold the government responsible for her arrest or internment. During her captivity, she continued to refuse to communicate with her questioners. Once free, she returned to Kauai and asked Almer to allow her to return to her home island with her children, but the request was refused. This was not simple racism. Almer did allow Shintani eventually to return, where he spent the rest of his life. And on the first night of his arrival, the locals held a luau. The closest Irene got to Ni'ihau was Kauai, where she settled down and eventually opened up a sewing shop. After the war, the U.S. government lost interest in Mrs. Harada, but not Japan. In 1953, Mitsuo Fuchida, the commander of the attack on Pearl Harbor, came to meet her. Ironically, a few years before this, in 1949, Fuchida ran into one Jacob de Chazer, who had been a part of the Doolittle Raid, who then became a POW. When the war was over, de Chazer turned his life over to God and became an evangelist. In 1949, he was at a Tokyo train station preaching the gospel when he met Fuchida. The pamphlet the American gave the Japanese began the latter's path to becoming an evangelist in his own right. When Fuchida was on Kauai, on his way back to Japan from spreading the gospel in the States, he received an anonymous letter that read in part, Please make sure to go to Ni'ihau Island to visit the grave of Nishikaichi. It is your great responsibility as the commander. The letter also praised Fuchida for his great success at Pearl Harbor. Up to this point, Fuchida had not known of Nishikaji's incredible story on Ni'ihau. The former commander contacted Aylmer and was given permission. After visiting the pilot's grave, Fuchida 
then paid a call on Irene, now that he knew the particulars. Because of all that she had lost and suffered, Fuchita felt that she was owed an apology by him. Mrs. Harada opened up to her fellow Japanese as she had never done before when being questioned by the Americans. Her response to his apology was later quoted in his memoir. Quote, I am puzzled you apologize so much. There is nothing wrong for the U.S. military authority to have convicted me for treason, as I am an American citizen born in the U.S. However, under our skin, the blood that flows is Japanese. Therefore, I do not think my husband did anything wrong. And she was correct in this from a certain point of view. As the years went by, the Niihau incident faded from American minds. As for the Japanese, the brave husband and wife team helping an isolated Japanese airman did not. Coming upon the 50th anniversary of the Pearl Harbor attack, a Tokyo broadcasting station wanted to record and present the story of Nishikaichi and those who had helped him. Irene agreed to be interviewed, but only on the stipulation that the viewing would never be presented outside of Japan. The documentary was entitled, A Woman Who Was Called a Spy. Again, Irene opened up to her countrymen. The presenter asked, Was your husband fully aware of the consequences? Irene replied, Yes, once he decided to help. Although he was an American citizen, born in the territory of Hawaii from Japanese immigrants, he still had a Japanese spirit. Irene Harada died in 1996, 91 years old. As for Alma Robinson, he had already passed away in 1967, at the age of 78. The furrows that once crisscrossed the island of Niihau have all but faded away. As this was a short conclusion to the story, here is a standalone episode. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, the Polish Thermopylae. By August of 1939, the Europeans in general, and the Poles in particular, could easily guess that war was coming. As such, Polish defensive lines were either developed or improved upon during 1939. One such line was in northeastern Poland, near the town of Wisna. This 5.6-mile, or 9-kilometer-long line, was to protect other defensive positions further south, as well as holding up any German forces trying to cross the Nerev River. Wisna was at the center of this line. Indeed, as the construction of this line had only started in June of 1939, only 16 of the 60 planned bunkers were completed. Those 16 bunkers overlooked the swampy Nerev River Valley. As things stood when the Germans invaded, without a declaration of war, the bunkers could only be reached by either going through the swamps or by a causeway from the nearby bridge in Wiesna. Six of the bunkers had 1.5-meter-thick walls of concrete, 
and were reinforced by 20-centimeter steel plates and weighed 8 tons each. They also had machine guns and anti-tank artillery. Two more bunkers were much lighter, with only machine guns. The last eight were simple machine gun pillboxes, surrounded by sandbags and earthworks. All around these, and four more that were still under construction, were trenches, anti-tank obstacles, barbed wire, and landmines. In early August of 1939, this defensive line was garrisoned by a single battalion of the 71st Infantry Regiment, commanded by Major Forber. Yet before the Germans crossed over, a machine gun company from a nearby fortress was also sent over, commanded by Captain Vastilov Roginis, as well as a few other units. On the night of August 31st, the German radio station Sender Gleitzwitz was supposedly attacked by Polish troops, killing several Germans. In truth, various prisoners from a nearby political camp were dressed up as Germans and shot. Other such staged events occurred that night, simulating a Polish attack on German soil. Hence, in defense of the Fatherland, the next morning on September 1st, Hitler sent over 1.5 million Germans, along with 50,000 Slovakians, to invade Poland. As the attackers made serious territorial gains on the first day, Polish troops needed to be shifted, so the battalion of the 71st Infantry Regiment was moved elsewhere. Now Roginus was in charge of the defensive line, with his machine gun company and a smattering of other units totaling around 700 non-commissioned officers and privates and 20 officers. In front of them was the German Third Army that was advancing from East Prussia on its way to Warsaw. But this meant, of course, that they had to go through the defensive line of Rockiness. Yet 10th Panzer Divisional Commander General von Falkenhorst, nor his superior General Guderian, nor his superior, von Klucker, foresaw any issues with this. Indeed, General von Falkenhorst's reconnaissance units captured Wiesna on September 7th, after skirmishing with the Polatska Cavalry Brigade for the previous few days. The Polish units at Wiesna evacuated the town and crossed to the southern bank of Narwev. With this done, it was time for the panzers to cross over the bridge and follow their men. However, that was when the Polish engineers blew the bridge. Still, German infantry waited over that night and tried to push the resistors out off the southern bank, but were bloodied for their efforts. Yet Berlin did not have time for this. Everything had been worked out beforehand, and it was vital that London and Paris see that it was futile to come to the Pole's aid. On September 8th, General Guderian was ordered by the 3rd Army commander to push through Wiesna so he could continue south to help surround Warsaw. For this, he was joined by the Lotzen Brigade, which gave Guderian 1,200 officers, 
41,000 troops, 350 tanks, 108 howitzers, 58 artillery pieces, 195 anti-tank guns, 108 mortars, 188 grenade launchers, and 288 heavy machine guns. Altogether, this gave the force 60 times the might of the defenders of Rockinus. During the morning of September 9th, Guderian, in a game of bluff, had leaflets dropped, urging the Poles to surrender. It said that most of the country was already lost, and the Poles before them would only be guaranteeing their own death by resisting. But Raginus lifted his men's morale by stating that he would never leave his post alive. As it became clear to Guderian that the Poles would not be surrendering their defensive line, it was hit by artillery and aerial bombardment. The Polish artillery was forced to retreat to the south, but the men stayed near their works. The Germans decided to break up the line on its ends first, so the northern tip was outflanked, surrounded, and cut off from help. On came the more numerous German infantry, but these men paid for their hubris with their lives, as the Poles opened up on them with their machine guns. The German infantry backed up, but was replaced by heavy German artillery fire. One by one, the bunkers began to fall, as the men inside were killed by the blasts. Still, there were a few survivors, and those Poles broke through the German circle and made their way south to join another unit. As for the southern end of the line, the Poles resisted as long as they could with their machine guns. When superior German firepower was brought to bear, the men retreated back to their bunkers that afternoon. Again, they had no answers for the panzers, but their guns reduced the number of advancing enemy infantry. With bridge-like structures being thrown together, the Germans began bringing their tanks forward. But as for their infantry support, that was pinned down by the poles with their machine guns, which left the tanks exposed. Guderian had a hard time explaining the delay and the why of it to his superiors. As for Raganus, he called to his superior for reinforcements. But as they would have to come from the north, no help could be sent, as the Germans were in between the two units. That night of September 9th, the battle for the bunkers continued. The German infantry would charge, only to be pushed back with heavy losses. But slowly, the German tanks and heavy guns made their way closer to the bunker line. As the sun came up on September 10th, the Germans used their firepower to reduce one bunker after another. By 11 a.m., there were only two structures left, and most of the men inside these were wounded. In 1946, the few Poles that survived this battle stated that Guderian threatened to shoot his Polish POWs from this defensive line if the remaining bunkers did not surrender. Still, Raginus held out for another hour. Then a German messenger came forward, offering a ceasefire. 
and things stayed quiet until about 1.30 p.m. That was when Raganus ordered his remaining troops, though most were injured, to surrender. One of the last men out heard an explosion and felt a gust of wind pass over him. Raganus had kept his word and killed himself with a grenade. The Polish defensive line had defied the odds and held up the Germans for three days and soon entered into Polish culture as a symbol of the country's defensive war. Of the approximate 700 Polish soldiers of the defensive line around Wiesna, about 70 men survived, but few of them survived the longer war. As for the Germans, they lost 900 men and 10 tanks getting past the line of Wiesna. <laughs> 